Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today, I'm with Stacey Mitchell, who's the co-director of ILSR, and we are very excited to be joined by Jeremy Greer and Solana Rice. They are the co-founders and directors of an organization called Liberation in a Generation, which is an organization dedicated to dismantling the current oppression economy and in its place, building a liberation economy where all people of color have their needs met, are safe from harm, are valued and belong. So Jeremy and Solana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And so what we're going to dig into today is a report that you recently released called Anti-Monopoly Activism, Reclaiming Power Through Racial Justice. And it's fantastic. And it's so vitally important in this space right now. Stacey, I'm actually curious what your initial thoughts were when you read the report. And then maybe you can kick us off with a question for Jeremy or Solana. It's a really great addition to the to the conversation about monopoly power and about racial justice and really begins to illuminate the intersection between those between those two things. And I think, you know, the the question that I'm curious about is to just learn more about the path that you took to examining the intersection of monopoly power and racial justice and what it is that led you to feel like those two issues needed to be explored in conjunction and put out in a report like this? Yeah, I'll I'll start. Um, and I, for me, it's it's something that it's one of those things that's kind of always been a reoccurring theme for me. But that I didn't know it that way all the time as I was going through my career. And I started off doing with my work around racial justice, working as a community organizer in Columbia Heights, and that's like north of downtown Washington, D.C. And I was doing that in the early 2000s in a community that was, you know, traditional Black Salvadoran community, not a lot of investments, not a lot of, you know, most of the businesses were local, not a lot of big chains, things like that. And then like overnight, that all changed. And all of a sudden, there are these like big box stores like Target moved in and Best Buy moved in. And then there are all these buildings going up with like Wells Fargo on the marquee of the building, you know, of the construction project and Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase and all these big banks. And it was just a head scratcher to me because when I started working in Columbia Heights, there was like one small credit union in the neighborhood, right? Like it's so it was like, what is happening? And what happened was that community was gentrified. Like it was like most of the people that lived there, a lot of people that lived there were displaced and pushed out into the suburbs or into other neighborhoods. And all of a sudden it was creating space for new entrance into the community that that otherwise in you know in the community exists before wouldn't even have like walked through, let alone buy a condo. Um, in that community. So it was like, for me, it was like this moment of like, wow, like what is happening here? How is it that these big corporations are are taking part in completely transforming a community like um, in, in what felt like overnight? And it was having these really detrimental impacts on the people of color that live there. 
And that was kind of my first introduction to it. And, and so what that got me into is like through the rest of my career, started doing work around really digging into the financial service industry and, and really realizing how concentrated it is, you know, and it really hit ahead, of course, in 2008 with the crap, with the, with the stock market crash, and then all of the, the devastation that that wrought on communities. And understanding that like and we'll talk about this in, in, in a bit but as we operate in this economy that has been set up and and constructed to really harm black and brown communities and and not allow black and brown communities to thrive it is these mega corporations that are driving the ship and for for me my introduction was into the to the financial service industry and the consolidated kind of companies that are operating in that industry and really bringing huge downstream harm to to black and brown communities so that's what really kind of got me into this and 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 really was the impetus for my experience in writing the report and I'll just pick up in current day, just recently, when Jeremy and I were convening conversations about the policies that liberation and a generation should be working on. And we have been doing a series of roundtable conversations with a small group of folks. And we realized when we got to the corporate power plank of our policies, you know, we talked to folks at Community Change, we talked to folks at Color of Change, we talked to folks at Economic Security Project, and it started to become clear that the tools of anti-monopoly and antitrust that are typically meant to rein in corporate power we're not necessarily reaching into racial equity issues. And they weren't being framed in a way that, I don't know, as a Black person, like I understood what my benefit would be <laughs> if we really pursued antitrust and anti-monopoly tools. And so we felt like there might be a role in conversation and in cooperation and collaboration with groups like ILSR and the like to figure this out. Like what are the intersections? And it's really just the first foray. Can you talk some about, we often hear this phrase disparate impacts, you know, that black and brown communities suffer more from the trends that we've seen in terms of consolidation of corporate power and inequality in terms of wages and income, that the effects are, are worse. But can you tease out a little bit more like what is going on at that intersection? You know, did you find or do you see that in some ways monopoly power is actually being fueled by racial oppression, that, that it goes in both directions? Yeah, I'll just say that part of the thing that we found in the actual report was that there isn't a lot of research on the direct correlation between disparate impact and corporate concentration. And so that was actually one of the recommendations that we have in the in the report is that we know that there has there have been some studies about wage disparities for black and brown workers at, as a result of corporate concentration, but there's so much more like corporate concentration in housing markets. How does that affect renters and homeowners, right? Corporate concentration in the financial sector. We know that if you only have a choice of five different companies to get a home loan from, 
you're you're probably not going to be able to really shop around. I don't know a lot of black and brown folks that like shop around for their homework. <laughs> right? You get what you can, you you try to get what you can. So we sort of think about corporate when we thought about corporate concentration, we really focused on the fact that there are multiple ways that people of color are impacted as consumers, as workers, as homeowners, as just residents in a community that that corporations have their hand in municipal budgets and the like. And so what we tried to do was make that connection between not only the control that corporations have, but the oppression that they're able to, to wield. And I'll stop there. I'll turn it to Jeremy to, to say more about that. Yeah, you know, what bothers me the most about this, like talk about these things is disparate impacts. You know, I read research, so I, I understand what it's meant, but it makes it seem like this stuff is accidental. Like, you know, there's a crack in the sidewalk, I trip and fall and break my arm. Like it, it is, but it is, what we know of this is that the, the way our economy is structured is that these outcomes are intentional and they're by design. And that our racial caste system that we live with in this country was built and created at the same time that our economy was being built and that they reinforce one another and operate in tandem in a sort of racial capitalism that produces the outcomes that we see and, and they do so intentionally. So when Amazon buys Ring, and has this tool for surveillance and police use it in black communities to surveil black people and arrest black people that is not accidental that is not a disparate impact that is an intentional action that has been taken that this that this company that can accumulate the facial recognition data and all of that is facilitating when you see the kind of stuff that we've seen on Facebook around misinformation and using uh, information to suppress Black voters, that is not by accident. It is an intentional design within a political system in tandem with a company like Facebook to suppress the Black vote. So, so my struggle with the stating is as a disparate impact makes it seem as if this like thing that kind of happens on accident when what we know and what we talk a bit of a lot about in the report is that there are historic underpinnings for the type of racism that we see in our economy and that what is being produced is being produced by a system that has intentionally put structures and systems in place to oppress black and brown communities and black and brown people. In the report, you use the phrase to describe all this, the oppression economy. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. And then I'd love to hear about your vision for a liberation economy. So, I mean, what it, but what it is, is a bit of what I was just talking about, that we are currently operating in an economy that is driven by a form of rape, racial racial capitalism that is historic in its roots and its underpinnings and is currently driving the, the, the outcomes that we see today for black and brown communities. And it starts with a very fundamental and, and though very uncomfortable premise, which is that we have to recognize that racism is profitable that the existence of the our unequal racial caste system drives profit to a very small group of very wealthy mostly male individuals in this country that run very large companies and corporations and that this has been the case the entire existence of our country an example that we pull out in the report is before the civil war slaves were the largest asset class 
of any form of asset in our entire economy. So human beings who are in bondage were the largest asset class and that the people that own those slaves were the wealthiest individuals in the entire country. The per capita, the Mississippi Delta had more millionaires, the equivalent of what we call billionaires today in the per capita in the entire country. And that is the product of an intentionality around the racism baked into our economic system. Also, the accounting practices that they used on those slave plantations are still used today. A good example is how you value an hour of labor. That accounting practice was used frequently on slave plantations and goes into how a company calculates how much they're going to pay their workers per hour their hourly workers. So we have to understand that these things cut through time. And the oppression economy, as we've defined it, really drives off of four kind of fundamental principles that we have to counter in order that we have to deal with in order to dismantle it. The first is that we have to end the criminalization of people of color. People of color are criminalized in this country so that they can be exploited. Exploited as workers, exploited as consumers, and to drive and pull wealth out of their communities. We have to end a dual financial system. We have one financial system that builds wealth for people, another financial system that extracts wealth from people. And that we have to end that so that we're all operating under a financial system that is helping us build wealth and be prosperous in our economy. If it's not doing that, then what is it actually for? We have to curb corporate power. And this is where this conversation about monopoly comes in. And the way that we think about this, and we talk a bit about this in the report is, when you think about monopoly power, it is really just corporate power magnified and maximized, right? Like it is our, our, is our, our structures in which we govern corporations in this country that are not doing the job that allows companies like Amazon, Facebook, Purdue in the agricultural place, Verizon and telecom to have such an outsized impact on the communities and the people that they encounter. And then finally, the way to address all this is that we have to put more political power in the hands of people of color so that they can influence the governmental structures that are going to oversee all of this stuff, whether it's the criminalization of people of color all the way to the the governance of corporations. So that's that dismantling is something that we have to do in order to get to a place where we can begin to envision and see a liberation economy. And what we're seeing on the liberation economy side is really the conditions that we think have to exist in order for Black and Brown people to really live in economic liberation. And it starts, it's also around four simple but somehow really difficult to achieve thus far pillars that all of our basic needs are met and that we have things like clean air and clean water and income. And I think in this sense, in this condition of that we have our basic needs met, we see things like corporations wielding their power around air, right? Clean air. If, if a company has enough power locally, they can pollute as much as they want. 
I'm here in Northern California where there's a whole bunch of wineries. Turns out that if these wineries are big enough, they can be in the pockets of the local politicians, drain the water table for their lovely, lovely vineyards, right? So we see this over and over again in the basic, in just basic needs. The safety and security that everyone, all people of color will have their safety and security needs met. Jeremy alluded and and talked about the connection between Amazon ring services and policing, right? So again, we we can trace back the, the connections of undue corporate power in undermining our safety and security overall. The third pillar is that we are all compensated and valued. We don't have to say a ton here because we know over and over again that monopolies have undue power in setting wages, especially locally. If you live in a place where you have to work for Walmart or you have to work for Amazon, like my cousins do in in Cleveland, Ohio, right? You, You are subject to whatever wages those companies are going to set. And lastly, that we have a a principle and the condition that all people of color belong. And it, it is actually just the opposite of what Jeremy has stated, that we do not have theft, exclusion, and therefore exploitation in our economy. And that we're looking at all of the ways that our identities intersect and may, and, and we're, we're still upholding and, and holding on to oppressive regimes, thinking, behaviors, and policies. So it's our way of thinking about, okay, in this new vision, are we still dragging with us any of these old systems of oppression that we just need to get rid of? Because they can easily just creep in because it's the water that we swim in. Oh, there's so many things I want to ask right now. <laughs> that was all really great. Let me, let me start with this one. You all are thinking about anti-monopoly in a broad way as, as we at ILSR do as well. Like the notion that there are lots of different policies that structure how power operates in the economy and who has it. And that we need to look at those policies from this lens of concentration versus democracy, equality versus concentration and so on. I'm curious within that, how much thinking you have done about antitrust, particularly as a part of that policy field, but, but just a part, but also ha- you know, a, a body of law that is, is particularly focused on competition and, 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 and consolidation. Do you think that there are ways in which as, as we're moving towards antitrust reform legislation, that antitrust policy and enforcement needs to have a race lens brought into it? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, I think we absolutely do, but you're right. Like, so in the report, we really argue for broadening the definition of anti-monopoly because right now, and, and, and we do so because it's our belief that the reason it's so narrowly focused and you know we don't need to get into the consumer standards i'm sure your listeners are, are well versed in that but the reason why it's been narrowed in that way is intentional and it, it is it is purposeful it is to protect the firms not to pro- actually in our belief to protect all of the people that are impacted by monopoly. It also means that we can't use antitrust as a tool to address workers fully, 
like and the impact that monopoly power has on workers. We can't use it as a tool to address the awful problems that happen in communities where companies pollute neighborhoods and then they don't have any recourse, at least through antitrust, to remedy that. It doesn't talk about the way that, that corporations avoid taxes and don't pay their fair share around what they pull out of communities. You know, companies ride, drive trucks on roads that they're basically not paying for and get to use free of charge and aren't even paying for it through the taxes that they pay. So the definition as it's defined is far too narrow for us to be able to have full accounting for the ways in which these large corporations, this corporate consolidation is impacting communities of color. And, and I think one of the ways to get there is through a racial equity lens and focusing on a racial equity lens. And that is one method of which to get there. And because people of color are all of these things, they are consumers, they are workers, they are people that live in communities. There are all of these things and we have to account for all of the ways in which companies are having disparate impact as, as we talked about on people of color. The other thing that I think is important as it relates to people of color is that the impact that, they, that these corporations have on them is not the same. So we pulled an example that you find in the, in the book in the paper is around Cox Foods or Coke Foods. And it's a it's a chicken. It's a fifth largest chicken dis company distributor in the in the country. And they get their chickens from small farmers, some of which are black farmers. And they have essentially replicated a sharecropping um, system with these black farmers in which they are basically in control of all of the ways in which they do business from how they treat their chickens to what they feed their chickens to the type of land that they grow their chickens on all of that is controlled by this company and in many cases have put these black farmers out of business now that isn't the same way that they deal with larger producers of chickens Right. So it's important to note that, like, there's a different way in which these companies are interacting with people of color and they're using the existence of racial capitalism in order to to extract as much profit out of folks in these systems. I mean, in the examples across the board for the way Amazon treats black businesses on its platform to, to a whole lot of other spaces. So I think through a racial lens, you can find a way to use antitrust as a much more powerful tool than it, than it currently is being, being used. And I'll just add that I, I think that we should take this moment and the interest from the current acting chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Becca Slaughter, um, at her word that she's like pretty serious about, you know, an anti-racist antitrust and is really open and interested in hearing from folks about what that looks like and what that looks like for people of color in particular, whether it's what they're taking on as cases, et cetera. But I, I do think that now is a, a great time to start engaging and getting our vision of what a remodeled <laughs> antitrust looks like. 
So, so I'm so glad you raised that because a great example is the way the FTC has partnered with the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, around enforcing the eviction moratorium around the COVID-19 crisis that's in place and making sure that corporate, large corporate landlords, which there are only, there are literally a handful of these around the country, are giving tenants information about the eviction moratorium so that they know what their rights are in this time. So I think that's an example of where the, the, the way the FTC can play a more activist role in protecting their charge of protecting consumers. We'll go to the next question in just a moment, but first we're going to take a short break to thank you for listening to the show. If you're enjoying the conversation, I hope you'll consider heading over to ILSR.org slash donate to help support our work. Your donation directly supports this podcast and helps us get great guests like Jeremy and Solana. You can visit ILSR.org slash donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. Now we'll continue on with our conversation with Jeremy Greer and Solana Rice of Liberation in a Generation. I think that's absolutely right. And and for listeners who don't know, Commissioner Becca Kelly Slaughter did a tweet thread about how, you know, antitrust enforcement decisions needed to have a racial justice lens in terms of how they look at questions around mergers, how they look at other questions around anti-competitive violations and, and the behavior of these big companies. And she subsequently, I think, talked about it some in a speech and has in a few other places, but it's an idea that she's been moving and she is currently the acting chair of the FTC as we await Biden's additional uh, appointment into those other seats. I, I wanted to ask you about the role of small business in Black communities in particular, both economically, but also in the life of communities. And as well, I think the importance of locally owned, Black owned institutions, businesses, in terms of being a site for social justice movements throughout history, civil rights movements. Um, Can you talk a little bit about about that? So the Black business, and and, you know, the, the One of the things about remembering the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa and uh, us looking back at that awful massacre that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma over 100 years ago is one of the things that we have to remember is that there was a thriving Black community with strong institutions and some of the strongest institutions in that community were those businesses, were Black-owned businesses that were not just building wealth for the people that owned them, which they were, but they were also becoming the foundational base of institutions that really made that a thriving center of of commerce, of community, of culture, of, of politics in that community. And, you know, during segregation across the country, There was a lot of that in a lot of communities across the country because capital from mainstream institutions wouldn't go in. So black people had to create their own centers in which to to basically govern and run their communities. And we saw that across the country and they became these institutions for these communities to make help these communities thrive. And there are a lot of black businesses like that today. We highlighted loyalty books 
in our paper, which is a bookstore in the Washington, D.C. area in Maryland. And that is exactly what they exist to do. Now, of course, the owner of Loyalty Books wants to make a profit and she wants to keep her business running. And she wants it to be a, a way to generate wealth for herself, but she also wants to be an institution where dialogue amongst Black people, where people can come and talk about books or talk about literature and talk about ideas in a space. And there are a lot of businesses that are that. There's a lot of talk about the Black barbershop. Is that, right? People come together, they talk, they, they interact, it becomes a social hub for the community or the, or the hair salon, you know, and a lot of places like that. But when you are pushing down on Black businesses in the way that these mega corporations do and become competition. You know, Black businesses started a deficit, right? It's hard to get capital out of mainstream businesses. And this has been documented, you know, more times than I can count the difficulty of, of Black businesses accessing capital. And when you're climbing uphill against that, and at the same time, you're being consistently undercut by large corporations on price, in competition for workers, in competition for space in the community, it, it really can for some become an, an uphill climb that, that can't be overcome. And then in this new e-commerce space, you have companies like Facebook with their marketplace, you have Amazon with their platform consistently actively undermining those businesses by throwing out competitive products, by undercutting them on price. And they have all the data that, make, that allows them to do this. And it becomes just for a lot of businesses, something that, that can't be overcome. And when you lose that black business, you're losing an institution in the black community that is helping to, to really create the power and strength that communities need to thrive. How has, um, you wrote this report, I think one of the things I really liked about it is it's written for an activist community, for activists in particular, and for like just the general public who are interested in these issues. It's a very accessible report. But I'm curious how folks who've been working on, organizations who've been working on racial equity, but maybe hadn't been thinking about monopoly power in their work. I'm curious about the reaction that you've had for, for the, from them to the report and to the arguments that you're making. We're seeing early glimmers of the, the ahas about the way, especially the way that we're describing the barriers. I think folks are, are starting to see like, oh yeah, that is part of the reason why I can't advance affordable housing, or I can't make sure that small business owners in my community have access to capital. But this is just the beginning. You know, the report is the first foray into this conversation. And I think that what we want to make sure is that the organizers, the folks that are building power in community are actually starting to not only make the connections across their topics about corporate power and corporate concentration, but also being in community to develop the solutions that actually address that corporate power. And so what we hope to do is continue the conversation from the report to really launch thinking around a policy agenda, a research agenda, and also just collaboration in thought partnership 
so that we're telling the, the story in a compelling way. I think the folks at Athena, for example, have been doing a great job of that kind of work, focusing on Amazon. And now I think there's um, just really a broader field of, of folks that are like, yes, Amazon and all these other, like tick, 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 all these other corporations. And we know how to take on individual corporations and how do we take on the regulations and the rules that actually govern those corporations and defining a new role for corporations. I think for a while, well, I, I, you know, I think it's a, a question for organizers. What I've heard frequently is that there's no role for corporations. Corporations are terrible, right? We need to take down corporations. I don't think corporations are going away soon. And so if we are to redefine the role of corporations in our democracy, in our economy, what role do we want? And how do we measure that we're moving it towards some kind of balance of power in the short term? That was right on, it's particularly that last point. And the interesting, like antitrust activity in its historic roots were about that. Like, what is the role of corporations <laughs> in our society? And how do we as the government and the people govern that? Like corporations used to have to demonstrate that they were gonna create some public good <laughs> out of their existence. There's no responsibility of that right now. Like, the, like it's basically, can you make profits? is the ultimate question that's asked. And the government says, well, if you're gonna make profits, you must be doing something good. And then they, they back off and they don't, they don't have to answer these questions about what value they're bringing. And they actually, and many of them, as we talk about in the report, are extracting value out of communities and aren't being held accountable for it. And that's the stuff that I think community folks really want to get at. Like, how can we stop them from pulling this stuff out of communities and actually being of some use <laughs> in our communities? It used to us, not to, you know, some shareholder living on, on the Upper East Side of New York. Related to all that is, I guess, how do you see the future of the anti-monopoly movement, the movement itself? How can it, how should it evolve in order to build this, this kind of future? The first point is really centering folks that are building power in communities that can actually organize, that can mobilize, that are directly impacted by the outflow of in the, the existence of, of monopolies and arming those organizers with the tools and the analysis that can clearly state why and how monopoly power is impacting their everyday lives. I, I personally, starting to get into this work, have read a lot about anti-monopoly and antitrust. And Honestly, I'm like, it's really bureaucratic and it's really jargony. And I think one of the first things is just, which is also what we were trying to do with the report, is just help people navigate who's making decisions about what and what is what are the terms and language that that folks use. Cause I I we at Liberation and a Generation full fully agree and believe that the economy is not a mystery that everybody operates in it and that we make it and that the wonkiness, if you will, and the bureaucratic nature of things is really just to make things abstract and to hold close power. And I, we just don't have 
the liberty of maintaining that sort of exclusionary posture anymore, especially as more people on the streets are recognizing the, the role of monopolies and corporate concentration in their communities and will be demanding and are demanding new alternatives. Yeah, I love all of that. And I, I just think that we've let the monopolists set the terms of the debate. And we're arguing on a debate stage around questions that they've written and about it through a frame that they've, they've created. And it is around these questions around why does the corporation exist in the first place? If it exists to create shareholder returns, which is what we've come to understand is the role of business, then we know that like that means that the corporation is there to benefit a shareholder community that is 90% white, right? Like that is what it is if we're allowing it to be on those terms. But if we are actually saying that the corporation needs to exist to, okay, provide returns to your shareholders, but also to strengthen communities, to ensure that workers have a livable wage and a lifestyle <laughs> that allows them to be a complete human being when they come to work, meaning like they get to have a bathroom break to go to the bathroom, right? Like at that basic level, all the way to like have health benefits and, and pay time off and are earning a wage that allows them to live in the city of their choice, in the community of their choice, right? Allows them to know that they're not feeding the company unnecessarily through like exploitation of the data that we provide as consumers, right? Like there's, there's so much that if we redefine the bounds in which a corporation is, is supposed to serve the public good, then we're getting to a place and now we can have a conversation about how are we, how a corporation is being actually advancing racial equity rather than being a force to fight against racial equity. I think that's the confines of what, what I'd like to see the debate to go, because if we stay where we are in the, in the current debate as they defined it, there's no room, there's no way to expect that we will see racial equity. Because again, if they're only accountable to a set of human beings that are 90% white, we're never, never going to get there. And by the way, I didn't make that number up. It's in the report. <laughs> it's not just me being like flippant with the data. It's like literally 90% of shareholders are white. So, no. Yeah, it's one of the great, it's one of the great facts. You have a number of like illustrations too that like, are. it's just a really, it's a really great report that kind of crystallizes a lot of those things in really clear terms. I really appreciated that. And I couldn't agree with more with both of the points you just made about how like it is how the conversation is framed, who's framing it and what the boundaries of it are and what it's oriented around that's so crucial. And then also this point that Solana made about antitrust monopoly has been you know really turned into this highly technical a conversation that only elite lawyers and economists, you know, working for corporations basically are allowed to have. And the doors by our enforcement agencies, they have shut their doors to the public. And I feel like that's a big part of like what has gone wrong. And I'm so appreciative of your work because it is really about 
widening that conversation and bringing everyone into it in a completely different way. So thanks so much for everything you do. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for what, what you do and, and for open and, and for having this discussion um, because it's it's so so important to give this discussion space and platform. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for this conversation. Thank you, guys. I just want to remind listeners that we'll have the report, which is anti-monopoly activism, listed in the notes for this episode. So if you go to ILSR.org, you can read it there and you should check it out. With that, thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. That was great. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by me, Jess Del Fiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Del Fiaco, and I hope to join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.